The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Life in Exile, a study of the book of 1 Peter. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord. From the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the word of the Lord. I am excited to be with you this morning and preach the word of God to you. I'm going to dig in. I just want you to know um, that I do covet your prayers this morning. Um, I'm as concerned as you are about the things going on in our world, in our country specifically, maybe more concerned. (laughs) Um, And it grieves me deeply. And this is why we need the church. This is why we need the gospel. This is why we need to be people who resist the pull of the culture towards bigotry, towards racism, towards nationalism. We need the gospel to resist this. And I pray this morning that we would see that and we see that there's a great hope for us um, in Christ. And honestly, um, for those of you who aren't believers yet or you're not believers at all and you have no plans on being, I hate this, I'm saying this in love, but there is no hope for you and there is no hope for our country outside of Christ. There isn't. And uh, so I'm a little serious this morning. I'm a little grieved. I'm a little moved. I'm a little bothered. Um, I don't know how this sermon's going to come out. I'm not too confident what I got written down here anymore. Um, But I am confident in the God who wrote the scriptures that we're studying this morning. And I'm very excited to get into the text because the text, I mean, I I could just read it over and over. And I'm going to tell you, There has been a great transition. If you haven't been a part of our church for very long, I've forgotten, I hate to say it like this, I've forgotten how good the epistles are, okay? We've been in narrative for like two years, all right? We were in the Gospel of Mark, and then we were in Exodus, and, you know, it takes a whole chapter to make a point, and I get two verses, and I feel like I'm struggling to explain two verses to you this morning because they're so packed with gospel gunpowder, okay? One little match and the whole thing's gonna blow up this morning. And I pray I bring the match. I pray the Spirit brings the match this morning. So I'm gonna pray. Father, I am incapable of preaching your word to dead people this morning. There's people out there who are spiritually dead and they need to be born again. They need the Spirit of the living God to come inside of them. They might not even be aware that they're dead, but they are, your word tells us that, and I'm incapable of producing any type of change in their life. And there's also those who are suffering and struggling and in great difficulty in their lives, marriages, workplace, families, and they're losing hope and they need a good word from you this morning. I pray that you would give that to them through your word. Use me as your foolish messenger this morning, Father. I pray that you would keep at bay my own thoughts, my own opinions, my own attitudes, and you would flow through me with your divine will, with your divine word, and your word brings life, your word brings change. Pray that you would do this for your glory and the good of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We honor God's word. By reading it aloud every week, we honor God's word by preaching verse by verse through it, and um, it is going to speak to us this morning. Now, if you're just joining us, we began a new series last week studying the, ver- the book of 1 Peter, and 1 Peter is the first of two letters written by the Apostle Peter to Christians who were spread across Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. And Peter is writing to Christians who were suffering for the sake of Christ. These Gentiles had heard the gospel. They had become Christians. And were now they, they were being ostracized by their society, by their friends, by their family. They were being pushed to the margins. They were losing power. 
Um, they were kind of a voiceless people. They had become foreigners. They felt like foreigners in their own land. Peter called them elect exiles. And I'm just going to say this because I need to now. Peter struggled with racism. Okay. Peter, the apostle Peter, he struggled with, he was a Jew from birth, right? And he struggled with being Jewish in his cultural heritage. He's thinking some foods were clean and others were unclean because of his, the, the Jewish purity laws. And one time, and it took a divine revelation from God to break him out of his racism. And God told him to go to Cornelius, a Gentile's house. I can't do it. I'm no, I can't eat this. I, and and the, the spirit of God has to reveal to him that he's a racist and that the, the gospel has blown up all, div, all dividing lines, all barriers of hostility between the races. There is no one elect race. There is one elect people, and that's the people of God who embrace Jesus Christ by faith. And Peter so struggled with this idea of racism that after he was divinely, it was divinely revealed to him that racism is a sin and he was a racist, he still fell back into racist behaviors and separating himself from uh, the Gentile believers in the, in the book of Galatians, in the first chapter of Galatians and then in the second chapter of Galatians, so much so that the apostle Paul opposes Peter to his face, Okay opposes Peter with the Catholic church believes Peter was the first Pope while the Pope got rebuked by Paul. All right. Paul said, you are not living in line with the gospel. You are still being driven by racial division. Repent and believe the gospel again. And what's so fascinating to me is Peter with a soft heart and the spirit of God working brings him to conviction, repents of his sin. And now look what he's saying to these Gentile believers as he's writing to them. He's calling them elect exiles. Elect, a, a term that's only re, was, was reserved for the Jewish people. His racism has been blown up. It's been deconstructed. And now he's speaking to people who didn't have the covenant, who didn't have the Old Testament, who weren't set apart and promised the promised land. And he's saying, you are elect exiles. Peter has repented and he's being changed. He's no longer that, that person who's driven by these racist motives in his heart. Peter's saying, you Gentiles have been chosen by God to be born again. And that makes them, that's going to make you different from your host culture. This brought about a lot of relational dissonance between them and the rest of society. They were now different interesting that in 1 Peter, it says nothing about Christians being uh, suffering physically or being um, tormented or being persecuted physically for their faith. Instead, the focus is on verbal abuse and discrimination, that they were being ostracized for their commitment to Jesus, and it's mainly social. As I said last week, I believe we, it's important for us to study this book because I think we're in a similar time Ourself, where we are going to have to pay the consequences of having beliefs and practices that the majority culture does not hold. And in fact, it's not that they just don't agree with us or they disagree with us and they say, okay, you believe that and we believe this and we'll just go our separate ways and that's okay. In fact, they find the Christian faith repulsive and they want to marginalize us and ostracize us as bigots. So we should expect that more and more Christians will begin to suffer in our society. We will begin to lose our jobs. We will begin to lose more and more positions of power in society, public offices and such. We might be overlooked for promotions or turned down for loans, all because we will not assimilate into the majority culture. We won't allow the dominant culture to dictate what we believe about God, what we believe about the human person being made in the image of God, what we believe about the reality of the soul and the existence of an eternal world that we cannot see, the reality of morality, that there is a morality in the world, that there is something that we call ethics out there, that there is the reality and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we will not bend and mold into what our culture wants to say about those things. So 1 Peter tells us 
We are not alone. The first century Christians were struggling with what we're walking in and they withstood it, right? And in fact, they toppled Rome in less than 300 years and Christianity became the dominant religion. So we don't have anything to fear. These Christians experience the same things that we're going through and we will more than likely go through as our culture becomes more and more post-Christian. But 1 Peter also gives us our marching orders as it is. It gives us our battle plan on how to live out the life of faith while being exiled by the dominant culture. And so we have titled this sermon of series, Life in Exile, teaching us how to live as exiles in our own culture. But before you go labeling me some kind of Debbie Downer this morning, OMG, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. They've been saying it for a long time, blah, blah, blah. Well, actually, I'm not that upset about it. For a long time our, in our country, you couldn't tell the real Christians from the fake Christians. You couldn't tell the genuine believers from the hypocrites. Nearly everyone went to church. Nearly everyone claimed to be a Christian. Nearly everyone espoused the same basic set of morals and foundational beliefs about the world, God, and human beings. And this created a kind of bland, bourgeois, pseudo-Christianity. A Christianity that had been rebaptized by American middle-class suburban values. So people went to church because that was the right thing to do. They went to church because they wanted their kids to be moral. They wanted their kids to grow up and become outstanding American citizens. Parents' greatest desires for their children were them to grow up, go to college, get a good job, and make more money than they did. They were using Jesus and the church to get what they really wanted, good, well-behaved, well-educated, financially secure kids. They found Jesus and the church useful. And so they used Jesus to get what they really wanted. This is bourgeois Christianity. It's not the real thing. And so not surprisingly, many kids that were raised in that type of faith abandoned it as soon as they left home. This is one of the great difficulties that we find facing us as 21st century American Christians. Many people have tasted the lukewarm water of bourgeois Christianity and spit it out of their mouth. The problem is they think they are rejecting the real, authentic Christianity. They aren't. And so I think the marginalization that Christians are beginning to feel in our country is actually a good thing. It's no longer normal to have Christian values. It's no longer normal to go to church. In fact, studies are showing when I was growing up, just when I was growing up, let's just say 30 years ago, we went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. We were the average churchgoer. People in our culture today they go to church once or twice a month and they think they are the average churchgoer. They think they are actually committed to their local church. We, they're not. You read the New Testament, that's not the type of commitment a Christian has to its local church. It's nearly an everyday commitment that you're interacting and seeing people from your faith community, that you're living under the eldership and you're being accountable to a group of people and you're sacrificing for other people. Going to church once or twice a month is not Christianity. It's bourgeois Christianity. It's Christianity that fits into your busy schedule. God doesn't fit into your schedule. You fit into his world. He's the maker of reality, right? We are to bend our schedules, bend our wills to his. We don't squeeze him in and give him 15 minutes here and 15 minutes there. And so I believe that this time of kind of persecution and marginalization and ostracization, it's actually going to be a good thing. It's going to separate the real Christians from the bourgeois Christians. It's going to cause people to really think about what they believe and then to really choose, am I going to live this out? Am I really a Christian? Is my schedule going to look like a Christian schedule? 
Is my bank account going to look like a Christian schedule? Are my relationships going to have the intimacy and the depth and the strength of character that Christian relationships have? Is my marriage really going to be Christian? Is my home really going to be Christian? Or do I just want the benefits of Christianity? More, good moral kids. A spouse who doesn't cheat on me. I believe it's here and now where true Christianity, true Christianity will actually thrive and shine so brightly. When the rest of the world is trying to decide what gender they are, right? We're being pulled into chaos, trying to decide what gender, what sexuality, what, how can I shape my soul into whatever form I want it to be, that Christians are going to live in a Christian way and we're going to shine like stars in the dark night sky. This is how the gospel was made to shine against a black backdrop of paganism. But bourgeois Christianity, it's kind of, it blends it so much you can't see the real from the fake. Suffering, see, suffering, ostracization, it's like a fire. And Peter's going to tell us this. It's like a furnace. You put, you put, right, you put your pizza in the oven, you forget about that thing, and it becomes this black, just crisp, right? It just burns it up. It, it, it takes the whole thing out, right? It's just gone. It just obliterates the thing. But yet you put gold in a furnace, and it purifies it. Right? It makes it more, be- the heat makes it more beautiful. It gets the impurities out. The same, Peter's going to tell us, it's the same way with suffering. Suffering reveals who the true Christians are. Suffering reveals, are, are you fl- flimsy and thin and surface level, burnt to a crisp, or are you gold? If you're gold, you'll be refined in the finer's fire and you'll shine brightly. And so I don't think, Now listen, I really don't think there's any reason for us to be bringers of doom and gloom about our future. Peter's going to tell us here, we have great reasons for hope, joy, and confidence as we seek to be faithful Christians in our city and in our country, even though we are a minority. Now listen, for 20, 30, 40 years, our hope as we've, as Christians have seen our dwindling influence in society, we've been removed more and more from positions of power. And what have we done? We have thrown our hope into politics. We have thrown our hope on the next political savior who's finally going to stop this downward slide, this downward trajectory, this marginalization we feel. And we've thrown our hope into politics. And I hope you know, politics have failed us. This last political cycle should have convinced you of that. Our hope is not in our politics. Our hope is not in a resurgence of the moral majority. Our hope is in Jesus. Now, I think it's important for us. I think we can say that, but what does that actually mean? What does it mean to say that our hope is in Jesus? What does that really mean? Well, that's exactly what Peter is kind of trying to teach his readers here in this introduction. And in the section of scripture that we're going to read today, Peter wants his readers to understand the unsinkable, unstoppable, unkillable nature of the Christian hope. A hope that goes into the fire and comes out better than it went in. All right. And just because we're only reading three verses, I'm going to go ahead and read last week's verses too. All right. Because I want us to get the Pump primed a little bit. Please open up your Bibles. Peter chapter one, verse one. Peter is writing to people who are suffering. They're being marginalized. We get that, right? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Look at this. Peter begins his letter with the gospel. According, your, your elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God, God foreloved you 
He chose to love you before the foundations of the world. He chose you in the sanctification of the Spirit. God chose you. The Spirit moved in, set you apart for God as holy, began to work in your life and in your mind and in your heart and in your relationships and through the churches that you went to and the preaching of God's Word to set you apart for God so that you could be converted and born again so that Again, born again for obedience to Jesus Christ so your life would look like Jesus' life. Not just to save you, not just to get you out of hell, but to get you to look more and more like Jesus. And for the sprinkling with his blood. We will never obey Jesus perfectly. We need grace. We need Jesus living the perfect life for us. That's why his blood is sprinkled to us. Now look at this. Peter starts like a good preacher would speaking to suffering people by reminding them of the gospel, all right? The eternal nature of it, the, the, the fact that they're foreknown, the fact that they're set apart, the fact that they're saved to obedience by the sprinkling of God's blood. And then guess what he does? He doesn't, surprisingly, go on to really practical matters. What Jesus does, or what Paul, Peter does is, there's the Peter, or there's the Peter, there's the gospel, you know, what I'm, you know what the next thing he's going to give him is? More gospel. He's saying this. You don't believe the gospel and then move on from the gospel to deeper, more, you know, you know some, some kind of deeper knowledge, some kind of deeper wisdom. You believe the gospel and then guess what? You go deeper into the gospel, especially as you're experiencing suffering. You, un, you press into it and understand it more. It's like an ocean that a child can get its feet wet in but whales swim in if you go out deeper. That's the gospel. The ch a child can believe it, but the further you go into it, the more marvels there are out there. And so look what Peter does. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And then verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's he doing right there? Blessed, blessed be God. It's so interesting Peter here, this is one of the things you can see about a true Christian. Something that makes true Christians different than the cultural Christianity that many of us have experienced, the bourgeois Christians that I kind of talked about earlier. True Christians don't just find God useful. They find him beautiful. Peter, is he explains the gospel and then See, I've, I've preached in some black churches, and one thing I like about the black churches is they leave the drummer and the keyboarder up here while I'm preaching. <laughs> and so when I say something like that, I usually get a, uh, uh, something like that, and then it tells me, go get them, all right? And then the drum starts kicking in. Now, that's what Peter's doing right now. This is a straight-up praise break. He is preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel, and then he's literally saying, hold on for a minute, i got to praise God. Hold on. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can't just blow past election. You can't just blow past the sanctification of the Spirit. You can't just blow past being saved for obedience to Jesus. You better stop and praise God for a minute. And he's telling everybody else, and what I'm about to say is so good, if you don't praise God, you don't get it. If your spirit doesn't rejoice and you say, blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, People who raise their hands and they move a little bit in worship, they're not just exuberant extroverts who are wanting attention, okay? They've tasted the goodness of God and they want to worship him as he commands to be worshiped in scripture by lifting hands, by shouting with a loud voice, by clapping if it need be, right? By maybe, 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 maybe. See, Peter is packing so much good news into this introduction that he has to stop in the middle of it and worship God. Even though the Christians in Asia Minor were suffering and going through great difficulties, living in ex exile, Peter reminds them that they have great reason to worship God in the midst of it. And Peter here gives us a great example of how our theology should shape our doxology, how what we know about God, how we believe the gospel should shape the way that we worship and we respond to him in exuberant worship. He's telling Christians, that was good, you better praise God. What's coming next is really good, you better praise God. And real Christians are moved to worship God. They don't just find God useful. They find him beautiful, compelling, worshipful, glorious.
Now let's keep reading. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. Now that, those words, the great mercy there, that word is, is in the Greek, it's Elios, and it was used in the ancient Greek translations of the parallel passages in Exodus 26 and Deuteronomy 5.10 to translate the, the Hebrew word hased. Now hased, that is God's steadfast love. That's God's love while you're dead. God's foreordaining love. He has, his love is beyond comprehension. Before you were in existence, he loved you and he loved you into existence. And he's saying, this has said, this steadfast love, this great mercy is the source of all the blessings and all the reasons for hope that you're going to have that he's about to go into. This covenant love, what does that mean? Christians, we don't get what we deserve. We deserve death, hell, and the judgment. Instead, because of God's said, we get what Jesus deserves. His perfect life earned him right standing with God. His perfect life earned him entrance into heaven. His perfect life earned him the inheritance of the Father. We get what Jesus deserves. This doesn't make sense. This is a great mercy. He lived the life that we should have lived, and he dies the death that we should have died, appeasing the Father's wrath toward us and turning us into loved children of God. This is the great mercy of God. The Holy Spirit, again, has sanctified us and set us apart and applied the work of Jesus to us and causes us to be born again. Look at the, look at the word Peter says there. He has caused us. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. God, you didn't cause it. I didn't cause it. I didn't decide it. God caused us. Study that word. Caused us to be what? Born again. Now listen, this is the biggest difference here between what I'm saying is bourgeois Christianity and real Christianity. Every single real Christian, the only type of Christian there is, is a born again Christian. No matter how good of a family you grew up in, you, you were born a sinner. You were born spiritually dead, spiritually unresponsive to God. And you could not cause yourself to be born again any more than you caused yourself to be born the first time. Right? You are a result of your parents' actions. You are spiritually alive if you are a Christian because of your spiritual father's actions. Jesus, specific, the father electing, the spirit sanctifying, the son purchasing, redeeming. You are born again not because someday you decided it was a good idea to turn your life around. If you did decide that, it was because the Spirit had already caused you to be born again. The Spirit was already convicting you of your sin. It was already drawing you to Jesus and to the Father. What's Peter doing here? They're suffering and he's drawing their eyes off of themselves and he's drawing their eyes up into the glorious graciousness of God. He's the one at work doing all this stuff. He caused you to be born again. Now, but listen, here's, he's saying, you, this is interesting, I love it. You're not just saved from something. You're not just saved from hell and saved from the wrath of God and saved from, saved from the separation of God. You're also saved to something. He says this three times. You're born again, or he says, you're born again to something. Three different things. You're born again to Look at it. First one. He has caused us to be born again to, I'm going to show you right here. It's to a living hope, verse two, four, verse four, to an inheritance. And verse five, who by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be re revealed in the last time. So you're being, you, you are born again to a living hope, to an inheritance and to a final salvation. Okay, we're going to break that apart and look at these Three things, okay? First, you are born again 
spiritually made alive in Christ, you had no desires for God, and now you do desire for God. You do have desires for God. You had no love for God. Now you do love for God, have love for God. You found God useful maybe in the past, but now you find God beautiful in himself and you want to know him and his son. You've been born again. Now he says this, to a living hope. Peter says, yes, you are suffering and you are suffering because you are a Christian, but your new, your, your new identity as God's children has brought some suffering into your life. But this new identity also, it's laced, okay? This new identity is laced with a living hope. Living hope has been impregnated into your new identity. And as you get this new identity, as you're born again, you have a new living hope. Now, I think this is really important for us. How many of us have hoped for something and it never came to pass? How many of us have, if you've lived long enough, you've lived long enough to have some of your hopes crushed? We have hoped for something and it never happened. We hoped for a satisfying and rewarding career, but we feel like we've just never found it, just on the other side of some promotion. We hoped to find a spouse by now and we're beginning to think that it might not ever happen. We hoped for kids and Then we go through the great pains of infertility and our hope begins to slowly suffocate. I was talking to a guy this week who was about my age and several years ago, he landed what he thought was his dream job. He could set his own hours. He was his own boss. He was helping people. And this week he said to me, I'm just really bored, man. I don't know if I can keep doing this. He had placed his hope in his career and now that hope was dying a slow, boring death. Isn't this what's so frustrating about hope? It just seems so wishy-washy. I hope it doesn't rain, but we all know we can't control the weather. We hope we stay married, but we can't control the other person And most of us don't even know how to understand and control our own desires and our own temptations. Our hope, it seems, is so flimsy, wafer-like, just thin. It seems like hope is really saying nothing more than I wish. I was thinking about this week, I thought, what are the, you know, I was thinking of two major ways that I lose hope and that we lose hope as people. First, I lose hope when I get the thing that I hoped for and it doesn't make me happy, right? I I, I think, okay, I'm hoping for this new position or I'm hoping for this new vehicle or I'm hoping for this new thing or this new relationship and I get that thing and I get into it and it wasn't what I was expecting and I'm let down and my hope is, my hope was in that thing and now my hope begins to die. There was something wrong with the thing that I put my hope in. That thing was perishable. That thing was tangible. That thing could get rust. That thing could get moth. That thing could break down. Every relationship can break down and unravel and fall apart. You put your hope in a relationship, it's misplaced hope. You put your hope in some tangible thing, that thing gets worn out and broken down. It gets dirty and displaced. And so I lose hope when I put hope in something that's not good enough for hope, right? And my hope begins to fail. Now, the second thing, the second way I lose hope is I lose hope because I never get the thing that I hope in, right? I hope for that thing out there, but I just can't make it happen. I just can't get to that thing. There was something, so in this situation, first there was something wrong with the thing I hoped in. Now there's something wrong with me, right? If I could just get there, I would be happy. If I could just accomplish that, then I'll be somebody. Then I'll know what real life's all about. 
And so my hope is in me and I'm not good enough and so I can never get there. But Peter here says, there's a different way to hope. A Christian's hope is different. It's a living hope. So we've all had hope that dies, but Peter here says, no, a Christian has a living hope, a hope that never dies. A Christian's hope is like a nail. The harder you hit it, the deeper it goes. A Christian's hope is always living. Now, why is that? Because look what it comes through. He says this, again, to a living hope through, connecting word there, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay, Peter. Peter's saying Christians have a living hope. Why is it a living hope? Because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. This is how a living hope comes to us, through the resurrection. Now think about it. We lose hope because we don't know how the future is going to unfold. We lose hope because we don't have the power to bend the world to our wants and desires. But we also lose hope because in the end, we're all going to die. Death is all of our greatest enemy. Think about it. How often do you really think about it? I know we try not to. Death cuts us off from everything we love. Everything we hope for in this world. Good kids, great education, great neighborhood, large stack of assets. Death cuts us off from all of it. So if we put our hope in any of those created things, our hope is bound to die because death snuffs it all out. Our money. You, we, you can't take it with you. We're working so hard for it. We're building up a nest egg that we can hope that we can hope in, that it's big enough to provide us a cushion from all the calamities in our culture, big enough to outlast cancer, big enough to outlast a wild kid who's going to spend it, big enough to outlast a good kid who's going to use it in a private college. We want our nest egg to buffer us, to create something surrounding us to keep us comfortable. And you know what? Death robs it from us, takes it from us. Your possessions, your prized possessions, your relationships, death comes in and steals them all away from us. Even your status. I was cleaning out my shed a few months ago. And I got, you know, the back of the shed, you just don't go back in there. There's probably animals back in there. You just hope you don't got any tools back in there. But I got back in the back and I started digging around and started pulling stuff out. And I pulled out a diploma, of, a doctorate diploma from Loyola University, from the person who owned my house before me. And I thought, this is a great analogy. Your most prized possessions will one day be in somebody else's back of their shed. Or if you're lucky, they'll get new life in a garage sale. That's where they're going. And if we have hope, see, this is why, this is why we become, and many in our society have become, um, they've lost all hope, right? They've lost all hope because they realize what death is teaching us. Everything you hope in your life, death takes away from you. Death ruins, death destroys all hope. You can't take anything with you. You can't bring anything with you into death. But Peter says, a Christian's hope is a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Think about that. The resurrection of Jesus gives us a living hope because it proves that death can be defeated. Jesus 
punched a hole through death and climbed back through into our world to live again. He was touched by his disciples, the ones that doubted, the ones that didn't believe in the resurrection. And when you die, you die. Nobody comes back to life again. And he says, I won't even believe, right, Thomas? I won't even believe until I can touch the holes in his hand and in his side. And Jesus shows up and says, feel right here, Thomas. And he does. Verifiable evidence. He was seen by over 500 witnesses. They watched resurrected Jesus eat fish and sit on a chair and teach them. He wasn't a ghost. He had a physical body. This reality is what turned the world upside down. It's a living hope in a world of hopelessness. Death could not hold Jesus in the grave and it cannot hold us if we are united to him by faith. Christians, when we're born again, our new identity is laced with a living hope, a hope of resurrection, because Jesus is a living Savior. We forget this. He's not dead and gone. He's alive right now, a human man standing in heaven at the right hand of God the Father with flesh on. Jesus is. He is our living Savior. And so we, his people, have a living hope in the midst of suffering, in the midst of the chaos in our world. We don't have hope in our politics or our political parties or our educational system. We have hope in a living Savior. You have a hope, Peter says, that can withstand the worst the world has to offer, who can swallow death. Or in the words of the poet George Herbert, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. The worst it can do is plant me in the ground where my new body's gonna grow up again. God has resurrected Jesus. God is gonna resurrect us. Death is now just a gardener. Can I ask you, though, if you search your heart, if you search your mind, where are you putting your hope right now? Is it in your politics? Is it in your career? Here's the last remaining vestiges of the bourgeois Christianity in our culture. Is it in your nuclear family? Is it in your family? Don't really care about what's going on in the world, just about me and mine. Only Jesus offers us an ever-living hope that will not ever be put to shame. Peter goes on to say, we're also, look at the next verse, verse four, born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Goodness, that's a lot right there. I, I am not going to do justice. I would call, I would ask you to read this scripture over and over this week, to meditate on it, to ask God, how good is this? Show me how good this is. Because I lack the intelligence and the oratorical ability to describe how good this verse is right? You know what this verse needs? You ever throw a bone out to a dog? That dog will take that bone and chew on it for days or weeks. He'll bury it. Then he'll come back, dig it up. What's he doing? I'll tell you what he's doing. He's meditating on that bone. He's savoring that bone. This verse, this is what you need to do with it this week. You need to chew on it, you need to smell it. You need to eat it. You need to think about it. Put it away for a little bit. Go, come back to it. Pick it up again. There is in, an infinite amount of riches and wealth in this verse right here. Okay, I, let me go on. Peter says, you've been born again to an inheritance. Now, what is an inheritance? Think about it. 
and you get an inheritance for one reason and one reason only. You're a family member. Scholar Dan Doriani says this, an inheritance is a gift based on a relationship, not a wage for performance. Think about it like this. You get your inheritance the same way you got your mother's nose and your father's eyebrows, right? It came from birth. It came from your parents. It came through a relationship. It did not come through earning. It did not come through effort. Peter here is saying that born again Christians have an inheritance waiting for them in heaven because they are in the family, because they are his children by way of the new birth. You can never work your way into a family, neither can you work your way into heaven or work your way into an inheritance that you've been born again by grace through faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We cannot earn heaven. It's a gift for us to receive. It's an inheritance that flows from the great mercy of God. And I'm going to say, we do not spend enough time thinking about our inheritance. We don't. And most of the reason is because you are bored by it because you don't have a right understanding, a biblical understanding of what's going to happen in the new heavens and the new earth. We get, we're plagued by these small pictures, these small ideas of heaven floating around on clouds. It's kind of a joke. Little cherubs, right? Little naked babies with their arrows and such. Hallmark has given us this picture, right? We have no concept of what heaven is going to be like. But here Peter gives us three very descriptive words to show us what it's going to be like. He says this, an inheritance that is imperishable, un defile, imperishable, nothing fails, nothing breaks, nothing falls apart, nothing ruins. You better eat that banana. It's about to turn brown. Not in heaven, it won't. I'll put it in my pocket. Right? Imperishable. Right? Talks about trees, you know, bearing their fruit in all seasons. How frustrated do we get that things perish, that we perish, that our hopes perish? Not in heaven, imperishable. Undefiled. What what does it mean to be defiled? Sin infects. Sin taints. Sin ruins relationships. Greed, lust, Everything in our earth just about is defiled, infected by sin. In heaven, it will be undefiled, pure love, pure relationships. What else? And unfading, unfading. And I said, one of the reasons we lose hope is because we get the things we wanted and they let us down because they're perishable, because they're defiled, because they fade. Peter is saying your inheritance in heaven will never let you down. See, that right there should blow your minds. Here's what we do. Man, I really wish this is our normal day-to-day life. No matter where we're at, we're sitting on the beach enjoying a pina colada, and we say this, man, I really wish somebody else was here with us. Man, I really wish we could stay an extra day. Man, I really wish we could have afforded something that we think is the best possible time in our life on the beach, No, and there's still something we wish. There's still something we hope for. Still not perfect. Do you realize you might lose that word from your vocabulary in heaven? You'll never want anything else. You'll never hope or wish for anything else. Maybe, maybe he'll let us keep the word, but we'll be like, man, I wish, boom, and before we could say it, it's here. <laughs> like everything we could possibly think and desire and want and love is there. There is no hope. There is no wish. There is no better place. Peter is saying your inheritance in heaven will never let you down. 
It will never rust. It will never decay. It will never break or lose its luster. There will never be a new model or a better model to come out and make it look shabby. It's better than anything you can even imagine. Our Christian inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and it's being kept in heaven for us. That means God is guarding it. And you know what this, this inheritance is? This inheritance is not just a bucket of gold on the other side of some rainbow. This inheritance is nothing less than a new and restored universe. No chaos, no brokenness, no volcanoes, no earthquakes, no racism, no lust, no greed. A new and restored universe, yes, with animals for some of you who needed that. Our imaginations can't even handle it. One commentator says this, this inheritance is untouched by death, unstained by evil, unimpaired by time. It is compounded of immortality, purity, and beauty. We can barely get our minds around it. But here's the other thing. Now listen, didn't you say that? Let me clear, clarify this. Jesus, God the Father, is keeping that for us, for Christians. It's guaranteed. He's guarding it, Peter says. It's not going to fade. It's not going to be robbed from the devil. It's not going to be destroyed somehow. God is keeping our perfect inheritance there for us. But there's another problem that we have. The other thing that causes us to lose hope that I mentioned earlier, that's great that God is keeping this inheritance for me up there. But what, what if I can't get there? I mean, many of us think of Christianity as this long, complicated maze, wrought with dangers. And then at the end of this maze, for those who are really smart and really disciplined and really can really hold it together and got a lot of will, they're going to just finally just inch across the finish line of this complicated maze and voila, there's their inheritance. God's been keeping it for them. All they had to do was make it there. That's all they had to do was make it there. Now what if... What if I just can't make it? What if my faith isn't that strong? What if my will isn't that strong? What if I just can't figure out how to get my life together and make it happen? See, we lose faith in ourselves because we know how weak we are. We lose hope. I don't even think I can ever get there because I'm so jacked up. I'm never going to make it. I don't think I can keep my marriage together. I don't think I can be a husband that God's calling me to be. I don't think I can keep my business together. I don't, I don't think I can do it. I lose hope in myself. Got all this hope. I think I can do it. Oh, I don't think I can do it. I think I can. I don't think I can do it. Look at verse five. Born again. Those who are born, those who have been born again, look who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Listen to this. Peter says, those who are born again are being guarded by God's power. Guarded to what? They are being guarded towards their final salvation that will be revealed in the last time. That means God is not just guarding our inheritance and keeping that. He's also guarding us as we are journeying towards it. He's making sure we're going to get where we're going. One commentator used the example, if you're going to throw a surprise birthday party for someone, you have to do two things. You have to make sure the party is ready and everybody's ready at the surprise part, birthday party, but then you also have to figure out how to get the person to the party. And it doesn't matter if you throw a good party if you can't get the person there. Now listen to me. 
God is not upstairs in heaven worried that you are going to make it to heaven. I got this big, oh, heaven, I really hope somebody makes it up here. It's dependent upon their faith. It's dependent upon their obedience. It's dependent upon how hard they're working. I really hope somebody down there says enough Hail Marys or does enough good works to get up here. No, he's a sovereign God who creates and guards our inheritance and gets his people to the inheritance. He guards us and keeps us and puts the spirit in us and protects us from the evil one and keeps us from temptation. And when we think we're going to fail, he holds us up. And when we fail, he picks us back up. He's guarding us for the inheritance and he's guarding the inheritance for us. Oh, that's dang good. The Apostle Paul said it like this. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Think about that, church. Think about that. God is keeping us. God brought us into the faith, and God will keep us and guard us all the way into our final inheritance. All of this, all of our entire salvation is based upon God, not us. His mercy his election, his son's life, death, and resurrection, his inheritance, his spirit, his power that is guarding our final salvation until it's consummated at the end of time. What part do we play? Verse five shows us very clearly who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Through faith. Our response is confident trust. Ephesians tells us even our faith is a gift from God. A dead person can't believe in anything. We have to be made new, made alive, given the ability to put our faith in Christ. Even our faith is a gift of God. And this needs to be said also. This is not a blind, esoteric faith in some kind of power of the universe or power in the universe. This is a historical event. This is faith that is based upon the historical reality of Jesus Christ. He existed. You don't just need to read the Bible to find out that. All history tells us he lived, he died, he was resurrected again. He was seen by over 500 people. I've already been to, that's a historical event that can be challenged and verified by evidence. Our faith is in that. Anytime somebody wants to get off on some tertiary issue about you know, the Old Testament about Christianity, I just want to bring it back to Jesus. Hold on, hold on. A guy was telling me this week about how all the faith are similar. And I'm like, and, and we don't really have to call God Father. I can call, her, I can call him Mother. And I can call him the great big guy upstairs. And I can call him the great power. And I said, well, actually not really if he sent his son to earth to tell us who he is. And his son called him Father. And he just kind of, and he said, you always drop bombs like that. We need to get coffee. I'm like... <laughs> Because you say dumb things that you think are intelligent. They're not dumb or they're not intelligent. Jesus Christ was a man. Did he get up? That's the question we need to ask. Was he resurrected? If he was, you got to accept everything else he teaches us. If he beat death, you should listen to that guy. It's a historical event, the resurrection of Jesus. This is our hope, guys. Look, when we look at our world, when we look at our world right now, and we see white nationalists gathering in our, cult, cult, in our cities. And they're, and they're having Nazi flags and Confederate flags. And they're marching to the streets saying, Heil Trump. What hope do we have? All those little disenfranchised white people are going to go home and they're going to go into their middle management frustrated lives and they're going to take their racism with them and then we're going to think that racism is dead because we can't see it because they're not rallying together in the obnoxious demonic resistance that they did this weekend. But they're going to be in their middle management jobs just being racists. White nationalists ha have no room there's no room in the church of Jesus Christ for a white nationalist who's unrepentant. Who's unrepentant. You repent. Peter was a racist. God's got grace for you. 
What are we going to do? What are we going to hope in? We can't hope in our, even our president can't just come out and say and can't come out and condemn white nationalists. Why? Because he knows many of them got him elected. Now, I know it was a complicated election. I know many of you voted for him. I'm not condemning you at all. I understand why you did it. It was complicated. I get it. His rhetoric has given them a platform to stand up and do this. Taking back our country, making America great. What they mean by that is making America a place where white people have the loudest voice and have the most influence. We're not going back to that by the grace of Jesus. We're not. I pray we're not. But what is our hope? It's not in a new political party. It's not in the next guy or the next gal that's going to take office. Our hope is that our future is secure because Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. He is who we put our hope in. No one else. Everyone else will fail us. Now, I've probably gotten a lot of trouble by what I just said, but that's good trouble. I'll be in that trouble all day long. Now, listen, when we read this, this introduction, what are we supposed to do? I think Peter has already shown us what we're supposed to do. What does it look like for us to have faith? It means us to worship God, to enjoy God, to find him beautiful. If God has done everything necessary for your salvation, including giving you the faith to believe it, the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. That's what you bring to God, your sin. But he's adopted you into his family. He's washed you with his blood. He's cleaned you up and filled you with his spirit. He's made you his child, and therefore you have an inheritance that's waiting for you in heaven. What is left for us to do? I'll tell you what's left, to worship God with all of our heart and all of our life. And not just on Sunday, every day of our life. This is why we gather together in missional communities, little worshiping communities, right? Where we're trying to remind each other, of the, each other of the gospel because little Christians that are just coming on Sunday and they're just out here, when the world gets darker, they're gonna be the ones plucked off first. Everybody knows, right? If you're living in a hostile culture, in a whole hostile society, you wanna band together, right? Stragglers get picked off first. That's what's gonna happen. So we come together in a community and we share our struggles and we share our faith and we remind each other of the truths of the gospel. This is what we're doing. That's why we come on Sunday morning. We're reminded once again, everything's going haywire in our world, but God is on the throne and he's leading us and guarding us and protecting us till we get to our final inheritance, which is a completely renewed heaven and earth. That's what we need. We believe it, put our faith in it. We worship God because of it. And as I close this morning, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian in here, I hope you're here. You don't become a Christian by following the book. You don't become a Christian by obeying some rules and becoming a good person. You become a Christian because God has worked in your heart and he's created this worshipful response from you and you hear the gospel and you go, that's beautiful. That's so good. I want to know a God like that. And then you turn, you repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ. And I pray that that you would do that this morning. And for the Christian, we come to the Lord's table this morning. We're coming to the the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. We're getting a tangible taste of the chesed, the steadfast love, the great grace of God. We're here because Jesus. We're accepted in the family because of Jesus. And so I pray this morning, as a Christian, before you come down, that you would search your heart and say, where am I, where is my hope misplaced? Am I hoping in my family too much? Am I hoping in my career? Am I hoping in my neighborhood or my politics or this thing that's going to happen? And you would confess it and you would repent of it and you would put your hope once again in the resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, We do thank you that we can have hope. We have great hope because we have a great God. We have living hope because we have a living Savior. And that is good news for us. We are not alone. We do not have to figure this out on our own. We don't have to maneuver and manage and make things happen on our own. We are exiles, but we are elect exiles. And you have called us and you have saved us and you have caused us to be born again and you have filled us with your spirit and you are strengthening us and guarding us right now. 
but guarding us. I pray that our minds and our imaginations can be stirred, our desires can be stirred by the thought of this future inheritance that we can't even really get our mind around, that you would use that to help us and to motivate us and to strengthen us while we are suffering for doing good, for righteousness' sake, for walking as Christians in this world. And as we come to your table, let us be reminded once again, it's all grace. We didn't earn our way in. Jesus did it for us. This is why we're in, because we're we have the body, we have the blood of the Son of God that's counted for us. So we eat it this morning in worship. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.